podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of progress. This is the first episode of Dementia Decoded, a special five-part series presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative with generous support of the Dana Foundation. Episode one, a special illness. To start this series, I want to take you back 115 years to the year 1900. Not that long ago, really, in the scope of things, but a very, very different, almost unrecognizable time in a lot of ways. One thing that was completely different was healthcare, what it meant to be sick, and what someone could reasonably expect from their doctor. In the United States in that year, the average life expectancy was right around 47 years. The idea that germs cause illness was very new and not universally accepted, and so surgeons didn't wear masks or gloves when operating. Often they didn't even wash their hands. Opium, morphine, heroin, and cocaine were all legal and sold over-the-counter at pharmacies. All were mixed into various patent medicines marketed to children and families, as were lead, mercury, and arsenic. Vitamins hadn't been discovered yet, so vitamin deficiencies like scurvy and rickets were completely incurable. Penicillin hadn't been discovered yet, or any other antibiotic. So bacterial diseases from typhoid to syphilis to strep throat were largely untreatable and often fatal. There weren't yet vaccines for polio, tuberculosis, smallpox, whooping cough, yellow fever, or the mumps, making them all plagues that killed thousands every year. For every 100 babies that were born, between 20 and 30 would die before age one. Since then, we've developed medical technologies and treatments that would have been unimaginable to the doctors of 1900. Prosthetic limbs, artificial hips, organ transplants, and in vitro fertilization. We can use electricity to restart a heart that has stopped beating. We can safely watch a living brain think in real time. It really wouldn't be too much to say that the progress of medicine over the last 115 years is one of the most astounding achievements in the entire history of human civilization. Working in 1900, was a Bavarian psychiatrist by the name of Alois Alzheimer, who was very much swept up in the new thinking about science and medicine that began allowing this amazing flowering of progress over the next hundred years. In 1901, he began recording observations about a particular patient he was seeing, a 51-year-old woman named Auguste Dieter, who ended up in an insane asylum in Frankfurt. Her first symptom, he said, was irrational jealousy of her husband, followed by a rapid loss of memory. This is some of what he wrote about her in a paper he presented in 1907. She was disoriented in our home, carried things from one place to another and hid them. Sometimes she thought someone was going to kill her and started to cry loudly. If objects are shown to her, she names them correctly, but almost immediately afterwards she has forgotten everything. Plainly, she does not understand certain questions. She no longer remembers the use of some objects. Ms. Dieter died four and a half years after these symptoms began, and Alzheimer took out her brain. 
He applied some just-invented silver staining techniques before examining the pieces of it under a microscope, a device that had recently become much more powerful because of the invention of electric lights. What he saw there, in Auguste's brain, he described this way. Distributed all over the cortex, but especially in the upper layers, there are minute miliary foci which are caused by the deposition of a special substance within the cortex. Inside of a cell which appears to be quite normal, one or several fibrils can be distinguished by their unique width and capacity for impregnation. Combined in thick bundles, they appear one by one at the surface of a cell. Finally, the nucleus and the cell itself disintegrate and only a tangle of fibrils indicates the place where a neuron was previously located. Alles in allem genommen, haben wir hier offenbar einen eigenartigen Krankheitsprozess vor uns. Considering everything, it seems we are dealing here with a special illness. This, of course, is the first description of Alzheimer's disease. It's a watershed moment in the history of neurology because it's showing tangibly that the brain and the mind are connected when it comes to illness. In other words, that conditions that had been thought of as purely psychological could be connected to observable physical problems in the brain. Here's Dr. Jason Karlowish, a practicing geriatrician and professor of medicine and medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. By the late 19th century, medicine was keen to engage in clinical pathologic correlation. In other words, give me a story of disease, a sick person, and then find me pathology that explains that throughout the body for whatever the disease may be. The spirit of what Alois Alzheimer's was doing was how can we get tissues from the brain, look at them and help explain the diseases that people have. And that was a very modern event, transforming another case of an insane person into a very particular case of a brain disease. That particular brain disease that Alzheimer discovered and now carries his name has become in the last few years the disease that we are more concerned about than any other. A recent Marist poll showed that it's the most feared condition among Americans, more than cancer even. And this fear is the very direct result of those 115 years of medical progress. The average life expectancy in the United States has almost doubled in that time, to around 78. And as of 2012, the country had more than 43 million residents over the age of 65. Now, I think it would be hard to find someone who would say people living longer is a bad thing. But it does have consequences. The number of people suffering from diseases that grow more prevalent with age, cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, as well as Alzheimer's, is exploding as the world's population continues to grow and the people who are already here continue to live longer and longer. Here's Phil Hope, a long-serving former member of the British Parliament and former UK Minister for Care Services, who is now co-director of the policy activism group Improving Care, followed by Dr. Luke Troyan, Vice President of Neurology External Affairs for Janssen R&D and Chair of Johnson & Johnson's Global Fight Against Alzheimer's Disease. We are rightly celebrating the fact that people are living longer but if people are living longer, more people, because it's associated with, with age, will develop dementia. And the cost of dementia, because we can't cure it, upon families, individuals, upon health and social care systems is huge. With the aging demographics, the baby boomers are coming uh, in that risk period, so around the 50s, 60s, 70s, seeing a, a broader slice of the population move into that risk area. 
you can just by what we know already today project that the number of subjects with uh, that will suffer from Alzheimer's disease will double and triple by the middle of this century. But what is Alzheimer's disease exactly? As we just heard, it's a specific kind of dementia, by far the most prevalent kind, it turns out. But what does that mean? When someone is suffering from it, what exactly is happening in their brain? What can be done to treat it? How can we best care for the people who are suffering from it and for their families? And what's being done to move us toward a cure? This podcast is the first of a five-part series that aims to answer all of those questions to the best that they can be answered, given what science knows and doesn't know right now, at the beginning of 2015. You'll hear from dozens of experts drawn from every aspect of the field, researchers, clinicians, policy experts, fundraisers, and people involved in directly caring for those affected. Here's Llewellyn Barkett, president and CEO of the New York City chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. For a long time, when my great-grandmother was in a nursing home, and she was probably in her 70s, looking back, as I was a kid, we talked about grandma was senile. And when I went to visit her, she thought I was her daughter, or her later on, she thought I was her sister. And um, she was really close, probably close to 100 years old when she died. And she'd probably been in that nursing home for over, well over 20 years, maybe, maybe longer than that. Nobody talked about Alzheimer's disease, and nobody really talked about it as a disease. People thought it was just got old, and some people got old faster, and they had senile dementia. That's what they had. We've now learned that Alzheimer's disease is a physical illness. That's the most important change. So what we're hoping will happen is an outcome of that of people will stop being afraid of it and ashamed of it. We still have communities where people think Alzheimer's is a mental illness, and they're ashamed, and they take people who are ill, physically ill, and treat them as if they were mentally ill. It's extremely hard on the family, and certainly doesn't help the person who's ill. The author and lawyer Christian Bovey, writing right around 1900, said that we fear things in proportion to our ignorance of them. We hope that this series will give you enough knowledge about Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia that we can all begin to move through our fear and begin working together to find solutions. Dementia is a set of clinical conditions that are characterized by a loss of cognitive ability. The ability of the brain to process information, to learn new things, to recall things you've already learned. Specifically, someone is considered demented if their mental function has degraded to the point that they can no longer care for themselves safely. Here's Dr. Randall Bateman from Washington University in St. Louis, followed by Dr. Risa Sperling from Harvard, and Dr. Tetsuyuki Marayama from the Japanese pharmaceuticals company Takeda. Dementia is a cognitive impairment that affects people in a way that impairs their ability to do their daily activities or their functioning in life. And it can be caused from many different causes, but typically it's a chronic or a static picture that um, impairs people over time and doesn't resolve. I think of dementia as an umbrella term. And it really encompasses many diseases that can result in a progressive syndrome of um, losing cognition. Usually, it's memory impairment, but it can be many other domains of cognition as well, such as language and judgment and eventually visual, spatial, and unfortunately, behavioral problems. But it's progressive over time, and uh, it must involve cognition and eventually get to multiple domains of cognition. 
people often think of dementias as being uh, difficulties in remembering, which is uh, for sure how it starts. Um, but eventually, dementias also involve the loss of, of the ability to plan, to think, um, to communicate effectively. Uh, in, in essence, dementia robs people of what makes them who they are. And that's what's so terrible about this, this set of diseases. People have been describing these kinds of symptoms in the elderly for almost as long as we have written records. Pythagoras wrote about it in the 7th century BC. And for almost all of that time, we've thought of it as an unavoidable consequence of old age. It was often described as a kind of inevitable second childhood, but in reverse. The time when you gradually unlearn all the things you once gradually learned. Now, though, we're realizing that that's not really necessarily the case. Memory problems and the rest can almost always be traced to some kind of physical problem, a disease or an injury of some kind. And that if someone stays healthy, there's no reason they can't live a very long time without losing much or any mental acuity at all. Here's Dr. Bateman again, followed by Dr. Richard Mayu, co-director of the Center for Alzheimer's Research at Columbia University. There's pretty good evidence that age-related cognitive decline is being recognized more and more now as actually being disease-related cognitive decline. And that, that there, is, there are some characteristic changes in cognition that occur in aging, but they're very little and um, they are not disabling. And they don't affect a lot of things. And it's mostly just timing and slowing. But almost all of the reported, quote, age-related uh, cognitive decline effects are actually now being shown to really be due to disease. People's memories really don't decline unless they have a problem. Uh, of course, the older you get, the more problems you develop. You know, depression, dementia, strokes, I mean, you name it. So all of those things can affect memory, medications, etc. But most healthy, normal people retain the ability to make new memories uh, pretty well over a long period of time into late life, so long as they're healthy. And people who don't are not healthy. Now, this is not to say that it's not normal and healthy to forget things. Everybody forgets things all the time, and the longer you live, the sum total of things you will have forgotten in your life obviously gets bigger and bigger. And we do learn new things more slowly as we get older. Children learn much more quickly than adults, and that trend continues the older we get. But this kind of normal forgetfulness and slowing of the speed of learning is very different, both practically and physiologically, than dementia. One very important difference lies in the kind of damage that happens to the neurons involved. Like all organs, your brain is a network of cells. In this case, largely two kinds, neurons and glial cells. Neurons do the processing of information that we call thinking and remembering, as well as sending out the motor commands for less conscious things like walking and the totally unconscious actions that keep us going, like breathing and heartbeat. Glial cells give physical structure to the brain and provide a large variety of vital support functions to the neurons, including keeping them warm, fed, and protected. This network is tremendously, almost unfathomably complex. The average human brain has somewhere in the neighborhood of 86 billion neurons and around 8 trillion glial cells. 
The neurons function by communication with each other. Simply put, a chemical signal called a neurotransmitter that has come from the cell next to it stimulates the structures at one end of a neuron, which are called dendrites and look a little like fingers or maybe branches of a plant. This causes an electrical pulse called an action potential to travel the length of the neuron, which is long and skinny with a kind of lump in the middle that contains the nucleus, down to a thicker, larger limb at the other end, which is called an axon. The end of the axon then releases more neurotransmitter, which travels across a gap called a synapse to the dendrites of a neuron next door. This is a simplification, but it's not wrong to say that this is the physical definition of a thought. A chain of signals moving from one neuron to the next across particular synapses in a particular order. Here's Dr. Maruyama again. You know, brain cells don't really work in isolation. They function as part of circuits or networks of neurons that communicate with each other. Really, the, the main features of a neuron that you would want to see functioning normally are that ability to generate electrical signals and to uh, communicate with other neurons. When we learn something or make a new memory, what we're doing is creating a new synaptic pathway that connects some of your neurons in a way that they hadn't been before. Then when we recall that thing, it's because we've sent a chain of signals down that particular path. When a person without dementia forgets something, it's because that particular synaptic pathway has been lost, which can be frustrating. But the good news is that it's reversible. You can learn that thing again, finding the same pathway or building a new one that performs the same function. Even if the synapses have become damaged or clogged or made to malfunction for some reason, which can happen as we get older, you can make new connections, new synapses that bridge between the same neurons. We do this by learning. In dementia, though, neurons die. They can stop working altogether or even disintegrate, as Dr. Alzheimer described in his original paper. And this is not reversible, at least not with any kind of technology human beings have yet developed. Here's Dr. Scott Small, professor of neurology and director of the Taub Institute for Research on Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain at Columbia University. Uh, the synapse can fail beca because of many reasons. If you think of a synapse as the bridge that connects, you know, we're looking at the George Washington Bridge now that connects New York and New Jersey, the bridge fails. A bridge can fail because of problems in the New Jersey side or the New York side or something in the middle of the bridge. There are many, many ways in which that connection can fail. But the important point is that it's the connection that has failed. The cell itself is still alive, and furthermore, it can grow a new synapse. That's what's the good news in cognitive aging. You don't have cell death. You have the death of connections, but the neuron itself is still alive. And that's why, that's a fundamental distinction between normal aging and Alzheimer's disease. And so dementia shouldn't be thought of as an unavoidable part of aging. Unfortunately, though, it's a frequent part of aging. Here's Dr. Maruyama. Um, so I think to think about it as something normal, uh, in a way that one would say, well, there's nothing we should do about it because it's a normal process of aging, uh, is, is 
you know, is wrong and it's, it's not going to provide the support that people with dementia need. On the other hand, what we have to realize is that the risk of dementia doubles with each decade. Uh, and by the time you've reached your mid-80s, about 50% of people have some signs of it. So while it may not be a normal process of aging, it is unfortunately a very common consequence of aging. Dementia isn't just a single disease, because that cell death can manifest itself in a number of different ways caused by a variety of different things, some of which we know about and understand, and some we don't. Each of these causing a different kind of decline. Here's Dr. Sperling. Alzheimer's disease does account for the majority of dementia in older individuals, probably close to 65 or 70 percent. But you can have dementia from many other things, including associated with Parkinson's disease, associated with strokes, um, sometimes rarely with infectious diseases. So although the syndrome may look similar in terms of progressive impairment, the underlying brain processes may be quite different. Head injuries can cause dementia, of course, and it's also sometimes caused by things that are relatively easy to treat, like a deficiency of vitamin B12. Also, sometimes things that aren't actually dementia can seem like they are. Depression, for instance. If an older person gets depressed and loses interest in things, it could seem sometimes like they're cognitively impaired. It's hard, you might say, sometimes to tell the difference between being unable to do something and unwilling to do it. In older people especially, though, Alzheimer's is one of a whole suite of progressive neurodegenerative diseases, cognitive problems that start relatively small and then gradually get worse over time until they become true and as yet irreversible dementia. Let's look at some of them one by one. To help, here's Dr. Richard Isaacson, Director of Neurology Residency Training at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. So, for example, if someone has a um, slow and stepwise uh, decline, meaning um, you know it's more abrupt and then people stabilize, and it's more abrupt decline and then people stabilize, and that person has a lot of uh, vascular risk factors like high cholesterol, diabetes, um, uh, uncontrolled uh, blood pressure, um, then maybe that would be more like something like a vascular dementia, where someone is having tiny little strokes and someone's declining uh, over time. This is a kind of dementia that's all about blood flow. Every living cell in your body needs to be connected to the bloodstream because blood is the transport system that distributes the essential supplies cells need to function, things like oxygen and nutrients. Cutting off the blood supply is kind of like a trade embargo. The cells, in this case your neurons, run out of supplies and essentially starve to death. Parts of the brain that no longer have function because the, the blood wasn't able to get there and, and that part of the brain, even little tiny bits of it, or larger larger chunks of it, um, have, uh, have died, actually. So you may actually have um, uh, little tiny spots all over the brain that have tiny little strokes. And these strokes, as they get bigger and bigger, or as they get more plentiful, um, that's when um, the person's cognition or memory and thinking skills, attention mechanisms, uh, may just not work as well as they used to. Another, called dementia with Lewy bodies, is characterized by the buildup in the brain of little globs of protein called alpha-synuclein, which also appear in Parkinson's disease. 
Um, dementia with Lewy bodies is interesting because there's a mix of sometimes memory losses kind of early in the in the initial stages, and then as the the person uh, goes along down in time, um, their memory loss progresses. But also as it progresses, maybe right about the time where they're not able to take care of themselves, it's also uh, symptoms of Parkinsonism, which is not Parkinson's disease, meaning uh, slow movement, difficulty walking, um, uh, tremors other things, um, visual uh, hallucinations sometimes, seeing uh, little people or little animals. Also um, uh, things like sleep difficulties. Some people may actually even act out their dreams at night. Their body and their muscles shouldn't be moving at that time of, of sleep, but they'll actually be kicking sometimes. They'll be sometimes bicycling. Uh, they'll be uh, violent in their sleep if they're having a bad dream. And there are many other possible causes. Parkinson's itself, though mostly a condition of physical decline, has its own related dementia as does Huntington's disease. A less well-understood condition called frontotemporal dementia is not uncommon, and there are dozens of rare conditions, one called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, for instance. But the vast majority of cases of cognitive decline in older people, 80% by some counts, are caused by Alzheimer's disease. Its ubiquity has caused many people to use the name as a catch-all term for memory problems, but it's actually a quite specific disease with a particular set of physical hallmarks in the brain. Here's Dr. Peter Davies, scientific director of the Center for Research on Alzheimer's Disease at the North Shore Long Island Jewish Hospital's Feinstein Institute. We used to talk about Alzheimer's disease as senile dementia, um, but what became apparent on autopsies in enough people was that the Alzheimer's disease is very distinctive. It really does produce a very characteristic set of changes in the brain which are really almost impossible to miss, um, quite, quite distinct from what happens in the uh, normal elderly. Here's Dr. Maruyama again. So Alzheimer's is actually defined clinically at this point by the presence of certain abnormal structural features in the brain. Um, extracellular accumulation of a, a protein called amyloid, which becomes insoluble and forms plaques, um, very uh, hard protein aggregates outside of cells. And, and uh, similar uh, accumulations of abnormal protein inside brain cells that are called uh, neurofibrillary tangles. These plaques and tangles are the miliary foci and unique fibrils that Alzheimer described in the brain of Auguste Dieter. Each are unwanted buildups of different kinds of protein. Proteins are chemical structures that are one of the most basic building blocks of all living things. All proteins are structures built out of smaller pieces called amino acids. One of the functions of your DNA is to provide the blueprint for building amino acids into different kinds of proteins, different genes providing the code to build different proteins. The amyloid plaques, Dr. Alzheimer's miliary foci, are glumpy, hard deposits of a protein called amyloid beta, or just A-beta, the English letter A followed by the Greek letter beta, that build up outside of and between neurons. The tangles, are stringy buildups of a different protein, known by the Greek letter tau, that form inside the neurons. 
Now, both of these proteins are produced, used, and disposed of all the time in healthy brains. Tau is one of the structural elements of healthy neurons. Specifically, it's used to build parts of the axon, the large limb that carries a signal from the nucleus down to a synapse to be sent to another neuron. Here's Dr. Ken Kosick, professor of neuroscience at the University of California, Santa Barbara. One of the main functions of tau is if you think of the brain as a big wiring diagram in which neurons are connected in some circuitry to other neurons, uh, the wires are how the neurons are talking to each other. And, to, and tau keeps those wires intact. Tau is uh, present in along the wires we call axons in the brain, and it stabilizes the proteins in the axons to transport a lot of important chemicals to the axon terminus, to the end of the axon, so it can be uh, intact to feed the next neuron in the, in the circuitry. In Alzheimer's and in some other forms of dementia, the normal processes that produce and use tau go haywire somehow, and it starts building up in really dangerous ways. Uh, when, when, when something goes wrong with tau, that is, it, um, it misfolds in some way. In rare cases, it may have a mutation. When it misfolds because of perhaps a head injury, something happens to tau that it then um, causes it to destabilize these axons by no longer attaching itself to these the tracks that keep the axons intact and stable, but instead self-aggregating, forming globs, forming inclusions, just sort of one tau attaching to the next to the next until it builds up into polymers that have molecular weights in the millions and start to collect in the cells in these nasty structures called the neurofibrillary tangles that ultimately will strangle a neuron. Amyloid beta, the other problematic protein in Alzheimer's disease, is less well understood. We know it's present in smaller quantities in a healthy brain, but as of yet, we don't actually know what it's for. Some clues have come from clinical trials in rodents that were aimed at completely clearing out amyloid from their brains as a step towards hopefully developing anti-Alzheimer's medication. These have suggested that amyloid has something to do with memory, which makes sense, and that having too little of it might also cause cognitive problems. Here's Dr. Sperling again. There is some evidence that if you completely knock out, say, the amyloid precursor protein, which is the long protein from which amyloid beta is formed, that those mice uh, don't do very well. And there's one study suggesting that if you knock down a beta by 100%, that the, those uh, animals also um, have developmental abnormalities, um, particularly in learning and memory. So it's probably not an accident that um, this protein that in Alzheimer's disease affects learning and memory may normally have some function in, in memory and perhaps in synaptic plasticity. But to my knowledge, that has not been proven and I think is a really important area of research. And here is where we enter the realm of the unknown of hypotheses, conjectures, arguments, and controversies. We know that three things happen in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease. Beta amyloid plaques, tau tangles, and the death of neurons. 
What we don't know is the chain of events. Which one of these causes the other two, and in what order? Or maybe if all three are caused by something else? Here's Dr. Small, followed by Dr. Sperling. The pathological process in Alzheimer's, we know what the end result of the pathological process is. What we're still searching for, and we, a lot of us have found different clues, but it would be wrong to say it's definitive. We don't know the earliest trigger of that long process. The end result of the process are three fundamental features that Alzheimer's himself uh, in 1906 described in his seminal manuscript. Neurofibrillary tangles, amyloid plaque, and cell death. So that's the ultimate manifestation of this long protracted pathological process. You can think of it a little bit like a heart attack. So when someone has a heart attack, you have a clinical syndrome with chest pain and unfortunately sometimes heart arrhythmias and um, and, and in rare cases, death. But what you see under the microscope is that there's closing of the arteries due to cholesterol plaque buildup in a, in a heart artery, a coronary artery. In Alzheimer's disease, we can see changes in the brain, which we refer to as the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. And these are the plaques and tangles, and importantly, also loss of the nerve cells. Um, and we believe that this is what results in the problems with memory and eventually other types of cognition that are progressive over time. But we still don't un fully understand the link between how the amyloid plaques and the tangles work together and how they actually result in the toxicity or the death of the nerve cells that are more directly related to the behavioral symptoms that we recognize as Alzheimer's disease clinically. This isn't to say that there aren't hypotheses, some very strong ones even. And it's a question that a lot of very smart people are working on in a lot of interesting ways. And that's what we'll look at next time. The mechanisms of these protein buildups. What do we know? What do we not know? And how are we moving forward? Next time on the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative and made possible by the generous support of the Dana Foundation. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman. Scientific oversight by Dr. Cynthia Duggan. Special thanks to the experts who appeared in this episode, Dr. Jason Karlowish of the University of Pennsylvania, Phil Hope of Improving Care, Dr. Luke Troyan of Johnson & Johnson, Llewellyn Barkin of the Alzheimer's Association of New York City, Dr. Randall Bateman of Washington University, St. Louis, Dr. Risa Sperling of Harvard University, Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama of Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Drs. Richard Mayu and Scott Small of Columbia University, Dr. Richard Isaacson of Weill Cornell Medical College, Dr. Peter Davies of the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research, and Dr. Ken Kosick of the University of California, San Diego. The role of Alois Alzheimer was performed by Philip Godica. For information about the New York Academy of Sciences Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, including upcoming events, publications, and challenge grants, please visit www.nyas.org slash what we do slash Alzheimer's.